Yay old man. Another episode of Yay, Nay, or Ma presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this podcast is very, very late. I knew this show would be a little bit late because I knew I needed to finish my Oscar preview videos before the ceremony this coming Sunday, i.e., tomorrow, as I'm recording. So I knew this would be a little bit late, but I didn't think it would be this late because it turned into a bit of a drama trying to finish these videos. Since I was using clips from some of the nominated films in my videos, I knew that there would be copyright claims. And most of the time, it's just, yes, we know this is copyrighted material, so you can use it, but you can't monetize the videos. It is what the production companies say. And that's fine by me. I never wanted to monetize the videos anyway. I really hate having to watch adverts on YouTube. So I don't want to inflict that on any of my potential viewers. So I never wanted to monetize the videos anyway. So I'm fine with that. But the issue is that there was one film which no matter what I did, I could not use a clip from. West Side Story absolutely refused to be allowed into one of these videos. Disney had a blanket ban on it, which is absurd because it's the only film out of the dozen or so I used that that happened to, and I used a significant chunk of Encanto in another one of the videos, which is also owned by Disney, and they were absolutely fine with that. So why is it only West Side Story, which I couldn't use? but? Yes, that took me several days to solve, and I ended up with a solution I'm not particularly happy with, but it's the only one that works. But that does mean that I am very late in releasing this video. So late, in fact, that an extra week's worth of movies have been released. So from last week's cinematic releases, we have the Kosovan international feature shortlisted film Hive, the British comedy The Phantom of the Open, and the American independent horror film X. And coming this week, we have another international feature nominated film, The Worst Person in the World, which I did see earlier in the year through extra legal means, although I do solemnly swear that I will pay for it as soon as it is practical to do so. But yes, I did watch The Worst Person in the World a few weeks ago, so I already had that review in the bag, so I may as well release it now since it is available to be watched in cinemas. And a similar thing happened to the streaming film I want to review this week, the animated feature, the adult animated feature, The Spine of Night which was on the 
eligible list for animated feature at the Oscars this year and has been released this week onto Shudder.com. And since I had a review of that also in the bag, I may as well release it since you can now watch it. And I also found time to watch one of the bigger Netflix releases over recent weeks, The Adam Project, the family-friendly sci-fi film. So lots of reviews to release, many of which were pre-recorded, and that does not include the fact that Paris 13th District, Jack Odiard's new film, was released last week. I did see that at the Film Bath Festival, and if you want to go back to my Film Bath Festival special, you can check that out. I mostly liked it. I thought it was an okay film. It's an anthology film, and as is so common with anthology films, one of the stories I thought was significantly more impressive and more impactful than the other two. So, yeah, there's that. But a good film. Lots of French people, lots of attractive French people having sex with each other, including the awesome Noémie Merlin. So, yeah, Paris 13th District is okay, and if you want to hear my full review, go back to my Film Bath Festival special. So, in this episode, I will be reviewing the cinematically released films Hive, The Phantom of the Open, X, and The Worst Person in the World. I'll be reviewing the Shudder film, The Spine of Night, and I will be reviewing the Netflix film, The Adam Project. And without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Hive is a Kosovan film, which is the feature-length debut of writer-director Blurter Basholi. And this is the first film to achieve a remarkable triple crown at the Sundance Film Festival. It has been part of the marketing for this film that it is the first film ever to win the Jury Prize, the Audience Award and Best Director at the Sundance Film Festival. And while that is indeed true, it is the first film to achieve that feat, it's a little bit disingenuous because Hive achieved that triple crown in the World Cinema Dramatic Section in 2021 and the very same year the film Coda achieved exactly the same triple crown in the US dramatic section. So technically true but a little bit disingenuous and because of that high profile showing at the Sundance Film Festival Hive was one of the major contenders or was considered one of the major contenders for the International Feature Oscar this year, and did indeed get on the 15-film long list. It did not get a nomination, which is mildly surprising, but it was a a pretty good selection this year. But it did make the 15-film long list, did not get a nomination. And fortunately, I didn't have to pirate this, because there were special preview screenings available in cinemas, including my local little theatre here in Bath, for International Women's Day, a couple of weeks ahead of its scheduled release. So that is how I saw it, and it did also have a Zoom recorded Q&A 
with Blur Smasholi and the organisers of the charity Bird's Eye View, who promote female and non-binary filmmakers. So that was a nice bonus on International Women's Day. Hive tells the true story of Faria Hoti, played in the film by Ilka Gashi, who is a Kosovan woman who, in the early 2000s, seven years after the Kosovan War, had to make a stand for women in the very, very patriarchal society of remote rural Kosovo. Seven years after the war and her particular village had one of the worst massacres committed by Serbian forces against Kosovans, her husband is missing. His body has not been found. He is technically classified as missing, which puts Ilkagashi in a rather uncomfortable limbo situation because pretty much everything that a woman needs to do in the very, very conservative, very, very patriarchal society of Kosovo needs to have the approval of a man. She is living with her father-in-law, played by Chun Lachi, but he's in his 70s, needs to use a wheelchair, really can't do anything. But technically, Ilkagashi cannot do anything without his say-so, and she's had enough. So, with a women's group that she is a part of, she makes the radical decision to get herself a driving licence, so she could go to the local town and get a job. And whilst in the town, she realises that there is a market for homemade ajvar, which is a kind of condiment side dish, mostly made of bell peppers, but every Balkan woman knows how to make ajvar. And she realises there is a market to make homemade ajvar in supermarkets, so she says, okay, this is a way of making money. Why don't me and my women's group in my tiny Kosovan village start making ajvar? But this radical stand for feminism is not liked by the patriarchal society, and she has to struggle mightily in order to get the simplest, most basic level of self-determination for a lone woman in Kosovo, who is technically still married, but it's been seven years, and her husband just isn't coming back. He's long dead, presumably. So... This woman and the women of her community try and get a little bit of self-determination in the monumentally patriarchal society of rural Kosovo. This is a film which, right from the opening moments of it, tells you the kind of situation that Ilkagashi is in, or Faria Hoti being played by Ilkagashi. The opening scene is her sneaking onto the back of a truck which has bodies in it, body bags in it, from a recently uncovered mass grave. And she is determined that she will be the first to know whether her husband is one of the people who have been uncovered in this mass grave. 
And that's the kind of situation that we're in. And as things go along, and this women's group meets up, many of these women are either weirdos or have husbands who were, quote-unquote, disappeared by the Serbians. So they really have no way of supporting themselves. And they're depending on handouts from the EU and other places around the world, you know, charitable donations. But seven years on from the Kosovan War, those donations are starting to dry up. And Ilka Gashi and her fellow women are really, really struggling. So when the opportunity arises, hey, we've been donated a car. Does anybody want to get their driving license in order to use this car? We can donate it to you. Nobody wants to do it because it will be such a shocking statement to even get a driving license to be alone in a car with a man who isn't your husband. Albeit he's a driving instructor, but still. And Ilkagashi is the only one who's even remotely interested in doing this, and she has to be persuaded to do so. The simple act of getting a driving license is a shockingly progressive thing to do in this environment. It's a pure statement of rebellion just to get a driving license, and the people's attitude for this technically still married woman driving alone in a car to the local community, I mean, as she drives past the local cafe where the men of her village, you know, and after this massacre, it's mostly old man just sitting and drinking coffee outside this cafe. She has a rock thrown through her window. She's accused of being a whore. Her daughter, who's about 13, 14 years old, gets so sick of her mother being called a whore that the 13-year-old daughter lashes out and accuses her own mother of being a whore. And, you know, she's driving, she's alone, she must be a whore. Therefore, it's perfectly okay if I attempt to sexually assault her. I mean, that's an astonishing thing which happens in this film. I mean, the simple act of driving a car is so rebellious in their situations, uh, but it just makes her all the more determined. I will have something to do. I will support my family, even against the approval of the local village elders, even against the approval of my father-in-law, Chun Lachi. I need to do something to support my family. And, you know, I can make Ajvar, everybody can make Ajvar, why don't we make and sell Ajvar? I mean, it's such a simple, basic thing to do, but it is a monumental statement of rebellion and showing the deeply, deeply patriarchal society of this remote corner of Kosovo is a really, really powerful statement. I mean, the setup for this film is so, so strong. This determined woman who will stand up for her own rights, who will stand up for her fellow women's rights in this small village, regardless of the prejudice she faces, regardless of the violence she faces, regardless of the fact that at one point her entire stock is just destroyed because, you know, how dare you 
as a woman make money. So we're just going to break into your stockroom and just smash all the jars. Despite all of that, she maintains her determination to make something, to do something positive, to make her own money, to have her own self-determination. She will do it. And it's a remarkable setup and brilliantly acted by Ilka Gashi, who is apparently one of the biggest actresses in Kosovo. She's the star of a, a very successful TV show, apparently. And also, you know, UNICEF ambassador and things like that. I mean, she's a star in Kosovo. And her agreeing to make this film was apparently a really, really big deal. But you know, obviously it doesn't really matter in the wider world. But you know, Ilka Gashi is very, very good in this film. And the setup is brilliant. But the payoff for my money is a little bit weak. I think this is one of those films that kind of meanders towards the end. I mean, I think Blurse Bashali saw a news report about this woman, Faria Hoti, and thought, okay, there's a story here. She went and interviewed her. You know, she'd already done documentaries, done lots of news reports, you know, publicity for her Ashwell business. But you know, Faria Hoti was well used to being the centre of attention. And this you know, film director shows up and says, hey, I want to make a film about you. And that's fine. Like I said, the setup for the film is outstanding. But once the setup has been established, once the attitudes of the people surrounding this woman, Faria, have been established, the way the film progresses, I think, doesn't quite maintain itself. There are Attitudes changed, I mean, as you would expect in this thing. I mean, eventually, I mean, after none of the women daring to defy the elders of the village and, and actually making Ajvar for money, none of them dare to do it initially, but gradually more and more people show up and there are interferences from the male community of the village. But a lot of the mind changing seems to happen off screen i mean even from you know the person whose mind needs changing within the house the father-in-law chunlachi his coming around to being okay to being satisfied with his daughter-in-law and his two grandchildren making ajwa for money we never really have that transition i mean by the end of the film Chunlachi is actually making Ashwell with the women, even in his wheelchair, I mean, just sitting in the garden with this big vat of bell peppers in front of him, you know, simmering. He's contributing, he's collaborating. But when did that transition take place? And the men of the village, I mean, yes, we have the rock thrown through the window, we have all the jars being smashed, but. The transition to that kind of thing not happening doesn't really happen on screen. So eventually people just show up and start making Ashrows. And I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. When did that happen? When did that transition take place? We're not really being shown the transition. 
I mean, one moment, it's the height of impropriety to make Azure for money. Next moment, everybody's doing it. And we really didn't see the transition take place. So, yeah, I think a little bit more of the conflict resolution, I think, would have been appreciated. And the situation with the guy who thinks it's okay to attempt to sexually assault Ilka Gashi. I mean, there is a little bit of a conclusion there, but I personally, or again, would have liked a little bit more of that to see, you know, does he regret his actions? Is he defiant of his actions? Despite what he's done, is Ilka Gashi still doing business with him? We are not really told. So, yeah, I think the setup for this is exceptional. The payoff drifts a little and meanders a little, and I don't really think we have the impact that I personally would have liked. I mean, Faria Hoti is an astonishing woman. I mean, she has you know expanded her business. Apparently, she has a, basically a factory now in this small Kosovan village and is exporting this Ajra all over the Balkans and to the wider world. I mean, I'm presuming to the Balkan diaspora. Basically, every Balkan person wants and needs Ajvar, so why not make it? So, yeah, she's a remarkable woman. I mean, she's done some promotional work for this film. She appeared at the Zurich Film Festival alongside Ilka Gashi and Blurta Bashali. She's an incredibly impressive woman. And... In some ways, I think Hive is an impressive film, but I don't think they quite stuck the landing. So I really do like this. It didn't quite make my personal list as one of my personal Oscar nominations in the international feature category. But nevertheless, it is a highly recommended film. And for me, Hive is a very, very high bah. The Phantom of the Open is the latest film directed by Craig Roberts, who started out as a reasonably respectable actor. He starred in Richard Iowadi's film Submarine and also had a significant guest role on the TV show Being Human and then starred on the Being Human spin-off Becoming Human. So Craig Roberts was a decent enough actor, but nowadays he is much more concentrating on being a director, with his last film being Eternal Beauty. What seems to be a somewhat autobiographical film about a female relative of his who had lifelong mental health issues, that female relative being played by Sally Hawkins, who also returns in this film Phantom of the Open. And Eternal Beauty was a decent enough film, certainly showed a lot of promise for Craig Roberts as a director. And some of the same sensibilities come in to this film, which is an adaptation of a non-fiction book which was co-written by Simon Farnaby, who also acts as screenwriter for the film version. Simon Farnaby is probably best known as one of the Horrible Histories crew, and as such, is one of the cast members of the awesome sitcom Ghosts. He's the MP with no trousers. And he also wrote the film Paddington 2 as well, 
as well as the forthcoming film Wonka, which a couple of months ago they shut down one of the big parks in central Bath because they were filming that. It was October and there were snow machines all over the streets of Bath because they were filming a winter scene for Wonka, apparently. So yeah, I'm going to be curious when that comes out. But yeah, Simon Farnaby is a very talented performer and writer, and he has a cameo in his own film playing a French golfer who is sharing the round with this terrible golfer, the worst golfer in the world. And that's essentially what this story is. It is the true story of Maurice Flitcraft, played in the film by Mark Rylance, who was a crane driver at a Barrow in Furnace shipyard who decided at the age of 46 he wanted to take up golf. And he didn't take up half measures. He entered himself into the qualifying for the 1976 British Open and got in. And since this was the very first round of golf he had ever played, at the qualifying for the British Open, he shot the worst round in British Open history. And because of that, became something of a folk hero. At least to the wider public, it was not necessarily appreciated by his long-suffering wife, Sally Hawkins, and his children, Jake Davies, and twins Christian and Jonah Lees. It was also an element of great consternation for the secretary of the Royal and Ancient Club at St Andrews, Rhys Ifans. So over the course of several years, this trickster and hoaxster repeatedly tries to get back into the British Open because he is instantly banned as soon as he shoots 123 in qualifying for the Open. But he persists nonetheless. And this is his story. This is the kind of film that Britain does so well. The triumph over adversity, underdog sports story, the story about the class struggle as well. I mean, this is very much a working class man who works in the shipyards of Barrow trying to fit in and not particularly trying very hard to fit into this very elitist sport of golf. I think this is very much a film about class, as so much of British cinema is. We have here a situation where a working class man decides completely on a whim, he just randomly sees a golf tournament on TV one day, he says, okay, I'm going to give that a go. And he does it. He gets into the open with his mantra being practice is the path to perfection and shakes up the establishments. I mean, there is such a high barrier for entry for a working class person to even get on a golf course, let alone compete at the British Open. And I think that's one of the things that Maurice Flickcroft was trying to point out. And he was just, you know, a bit of a, a cheeky jokester. But the snobbery and the elitism of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club is very palpable to see. I mean, not only did they not want this working class person in their tournament, they also have such an elitist attitude 
that it never even occurs to them that somebody would try to break into the elitist, ring-fenced situation they find themselves in. Well, we don't need to protect ourselves because who would be stupid enough to try? Well, Morris Flickcroft is stupid enough to try, and he keeps on trying. This is a dreamer. I mean, it's, it's portrayed as if he is a lifelong dreamer who, to some degree, had to give up his dreams when he became a husband and father and stepfather to his eldest son. His dreams were put on hold, and when this bizarre idea comes into his mind, oh, I want to give golf a go, then Sally Hawkins is absolutely supportive. Again, okay, it's weird, but go ahead. If that's what you want to do, I will support you. And this is not appreciated by his children, particularly his eldest son, who is embarrassed by his flamboyant father and his flamboyant failures. But you need something. I mean, this is a film about classism, and since it is set in the late 70s through to the mid-80s, a different aspect and a very dangerous aspect of classism is Thatcherism. Mark Rylance is working at a shipyard, which is under great threat from Margaret Thatcher. And eventually, these things have consequences. I mean, the fact that he is you know, this notorious jokester, the fact he at one point gets arrested for trespass because he sneaks his way onto a golf course and a golf tournament... These dreams do have consequences. I mean, I like the fact in this particular film, what Craig Roberts has done is shown that, yes, the British are great at cultivating dreamers and applauding dreamers. But if you do dream, sometimes those dreams have consequences. And there are genuine consequences for Mark Rylance and his family with this absurd pursuit of golf. His life does not go in particularly good directions. But he is inclusive as well. His wife is very much into theatre and spends all her time at the Amateur Dramatics Society, and Mark Rylance spends a lot of his evenings sewing costumes for his wife's theatre troupe. His twin sons are really into disco dancing. And quite apart from saying, oh, oh, don't be so silly, go and get yourself a real job. Mark Rylance says to his sons, well, if that's your dream, pursue it. Go ahead, go and do it. I mean, but we as an audience know that disco dancing does not have a particularly long shelf life. But they don't know that at the time and they pursue their dreams. And he's also inclusive in another way. He randomly meets Sevi Ballesteros, and over the end credits, there is a photograph of the real Morris Flitcroft with the real Sevi Ballesteros. So they did at least meet once, but in the film, there is a conversation between Sevi Ballesteros and Morris Flitcroft. And Morris Flitcroft talks to him in very rudimentary but accurate Spanish. He is trying his best to welcome this foreigner to England. I mean, this was in 1976. It was probably one of the first times that Seve Ballesteros had ever competed on a British golf course. And here's this guy at least trying to speak Spanish to him. So he's inclusive in that way. So yes, this is a film about being inclusive. This is a film about being a dreamer. But 
it is a film about the consequences as well. There is a price to be paid sometimes if you have this kind of mindset, if you have this kind of attitude. And I think that's what we have here. We have the story of a fantasist who goes too far sometimes. I mean, many times he goes too far. He is a fantasist, he is a dreamer, but he's a reasonably good guy. And yeah, I think this is a fascinating little film. At the end of the day, this is very similar to a lot of films of this ilk, you know, the British underdog fighting against the system film. We've seen this many, many times before, and there's nothing massively different about it other than the fact that in this film there are consequences. So yeah, of this type of film, I think this is perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable. And I do like it. You can probably still find this one at the cinemas. And if you do, I think for me, Phantom of the Open is a reasonably solid meh. Next up, we have the horror film X, which is written and directed by Ty West who has a reputation as one of the best independent horror filmmakers out there. He's long been associated with the mumblecore crew of people like Joe Swanberg and has a couple of very well-regarded horror films in his background, like The Innkeepers and The Sacrament. But The Sacrament was in 2013, and he hasn't made a horror film since. He's made a lot of television, a lot of television, much of it horror themed but this is his first feature film since 2016 and his 2016 film was a western so yeah this is to some degree a return for ty west to the horror filmmaking milieu and in this case we are in 1979 where a strip club manager decides to take some of his employees and some of his friends out into the middle of rural Texas in order to make a porn film. His philosophy is, if Debbie Does Dallas can make a million dollars, why can't I make a million dollars shooting a cheap porn film in the middle of rural Texas? So we end up in a situation where three couples are heading off to Texas in order to make a porn film. Mildly sleazy, 40-something Martin Henderson and his girlfriend-slash-employee Mia Goth, another one of his employees, Brittany Snow, and her quasi-boyfriend-slash-porn-stud Kid Cuddy, and the filmmaker and director of this porn movie, Owen Campbell, who dreams of making an art movie, not just smut, and his girlfriend-slash-sound recordist, Jenna Ortega. But as these six people settle into the mildly ramshackle cabin they've hired for the week in the middle of rural Texas, the owner of this cabin, who lives in the farmhouse just down the road, played by Stephen Yeur, starts acting really, really creepy. And when it is realised what these six people are actually doing in the middle of very conservative, very rural Texas, suddenly all bets are off and these six 
potential porn actors are fighting for their lives. I do understand what Ty West was trying to do with this film. I think his attitudes to the 1970s, to the explosion of the porn industry, you know, in the wake of things like Deep Throat and Behind the Green Door and Debbie Does Dallas, thinking that you can make money from doing porn, and if you own a strip club or manage a strip club, I'm not exactly sure which, then you have access to girls who are willing to do stuff for money, including Mia Goth, who is a stripper and the girlfriend of this older strip club owner. And Mia Goth is basically the, the lead of this film. And her attitude, I think, is very fascinating and also, I think, demonstrates what Ty West was trying to do. She is always talking about the American dream. She is talking about how she deserves success, how she deserves to be famous. So she is very shallow, very consumerist, but she's got a goal. And her colleague slash friend Brittany Stowe, also a stripper, just likes sex. And if you can get paid for having sex, why not? And then we have Jenna Ortega, who is repeatedly referred to throughout the film as Church Mouse. She really doesn't know what she's getting herself into. She's going along with her boyfriend to make this film in remote rural Texas and is kind of horrified, but also kind of fascinated by what's going on. And the gradual seduction of Jenna Ortega throughout the course of the film is actually one of the more interesting and intriguing factors about this film. And yes, there are some interesting aspects to this film. I find it very interesting, and it has to have been deliberate, that in a complete opposite to what usually happens in this kind of slasher film, it is the people who are least interested in sex who get killed first, and get killed in very, very brutal ways. There's also some really nice creepy tense moments there's a brilliantly executed sequence of tension involving an alligator of all things but that was very very well done by ty west i think the attitudes of the people in the film the way that mia goth is exploring her sexuality exploring her boundaries and exploring the boundaries of the people around her I find it very notable that we never get a proper look at the farmer, Stephen Yeur, and when we eventually see the farmer's wife, we also never get a really good look at her either. So there's something going on there. I like the bravery of the cast. I mean, most of the cast get completely naked. There are some sex scenes. I mean, we do see the film within the film, the porn film within the film. And for a large stretch of the film, Mia Goth is walking around wearing nothing but short dungarees and cowboy boots. And nothing but short dungarees and cowboy boots. So there is so much side boob from Mia Goth in this film. It's impressive. And we do see Mia Goth topless as well. So yeah, I mean, there's quite a few things to admire about this film. 
But I think this film thinks it is a lot more clever than it actually is. When we start seeing the farmer, you know, this very conservative farmer who's always got a televangelist on the screen. I mean, whenever there's a TV, it's always got the same televangelist on it. I mean, making the point about the very conservative, very religious Texas of the 1970s, and I suppose still now. But this very conservative farmer who, you know, once he realises what's going on, is not happy about it. I started realising he was being shot in very unusual ways. And that also remained the case when his wife shows up as well. And the wife was being shot in such a specific way, such an unusual way, I realised that there was something else up. And I was realising, oh, I think I see what Ty West is trying to do. I mean, you can work this out on Wikipedia if you so desire, or work this out on IMDb if you so desire, but... I don't think it's necessary to reveal it here. You might well be able to work it out simply from the way I'm talking about it. But the revelation about the wife in this farmhouse, I think Ty West was going, ha ha, did you see what we did there? Aren't we being clever? And yeah, kinda, but not as much as you think you are being clever. So yeah, I think... Ultimately, this is a reasonably standard slasher film with a couple of tropes which are neatly inverted. But more than anything, it's a relatively standard slasher film with some loving pastiches of the 1970s porn industry as well. And Kid Cuddy clearly having a blast. And eventually we see him sleeping with all three of the women at least simulatedly, and you know, there is a When Harry Met Sally moment as well, which undercuts his you know, stud status as well. So yeah, there are some nicely inverted tropes, but ultimately this is kind of a basic slasher movie. So yeah, it's okay. It's not as clever as it thinks it is. I think the acting all around is pretty good. I think Mia Goth is actually very, very good. And at the same time they were shooting this film, apparently they were also shooting a prequel to this film. So already in the can, I mean, it's listed on IMDb as already being in post-production. A prequel to this film is already close to being completed. So, yeah, Ty West didn't hang about. And, yeah, I think if it does come out, I would be interested enough in seeing it. I mean, now I know what the mechanism of X is, I think I would appreciate this prequel Pearl a lot more. But yeah, this is decent stuff, a good enough horror film, a good enough evocation of the 1970s porn scene. And for me, X is a pretty solid meh. So now we've dealt with last week's cinematic releases, let's go on to the pre-recorded review I already had in the bag for a film that was released this week. Archive start. It is late February, and I have just watched through extra-legal means the Norwegian film The Worst Person in the World, because it has got a couple of Oscar nominations, and it is being released 
or at least it is scheduled to be released just before the Oscar ceremony this year. So in order to include it in my Oscar deliberations, I needed to watch it early. But I solemnly swear that when it becomes readily available, I will pay for this film because I always believe in paying for my media. But time is an issue. And because the film is being released just before the Oscars, there's every chance that by the time you are hearing this, you will know what the results of the Oscars are. So I'm just assuming, as I sit here in February, that the worst person in the world lost out on the best international feature to the Japanese film Drive My Car, and it lost out on the other Oscar nomination it mildly surprisingly got best original screenplay to either Licorice Pizza or Belfast. But I think in both cases, these were worthy Oscar nominations. This film is directed by Joachim Trier. This film, The Worst Person in the World, has been included into what has been described as the Oslo Trilogy, a loose connection of films dealing with the complex emotional lives of young people living in Oslo, and all of them starring the actor Anders Danielson Lee, in each case playing a different character, but certainly thematically connected. It is written like the previous Oslo Trilogy films, Reprise in 2006 and Oslo August 31st in 2011, by Eskil Vogt. Now, Eskil Vogt is a filmmaker I really, really like. He wrote and directed the awesome Norwegian film from 2015, Blind, which was my top film of that year, and is thoroughly recommended. So I like both Joachim Trier and Eskil Vogt, and this film stars Renato Rinsver, who, after this film premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, actually won Best Actress at Cannes, and has also been nominated for a BAFTA Award for Best Leading Actress. And again, by the time this is released, I'm assuming she will have lost that BAFTA Award Probably to Lady Gaga of House of Gucci, but it's a, a somewhat unusual lineup for Best Leading Actress at the BAFTAs this year. But yes, Renata Rinsvig did get a BAFTA nomination as well as that win for Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival, and she stars as Yulia, a young woman drifting through life. This film is told in a prologue, 12 chapters, and an epilogue and has little scenes, little vignettes from various stages of this young woman going from her mid-twenties to her early thirties. This is a woman who does not have her shit together, and is not especially trying to get her shit together, yet somehow seems to be happily gliding through life. with intense relationships with Anders Danielson Lee, and eventually a different relationship with Herbert Nordrum. This young woman, Yulia, 
tries to figure out what her life is, what it means, where she is going. What does it mean to be a young woman in a Western country in the early 21st century? And that has become an increasingly common trope of cinema over recent years. I think this really started, or at least got widespread attention, with Greta Gerwig's work with her partner Noah Baumbach in films like Francis Ha, was probably the epitome of this type of movie. And then, to a certain degree, Mistress America, I think, could also fit into this category. And this trope of the late 20s, early 30s woman trying to get her shit together has become an increasingly common subject for films. Over recent years, we've had examples like Brittany Runs a Marathon, St. Francis, Spinster, I Used to Go Here, Baby Done. And just last year, there was another Norwegian film, Ninja Baby, which I also think fits nicely into this category. So that's material from all over the world. I mean, from America, Canada, New Zealand, and Norway. These types of films have become part of the zeitgeist, I think. And in a lot of ways, I think the worst person in the world is kind of the epitome of this type of film. Early on, Renata Rinsver asks the question, when does life start? And that's kind of what this film is about. This woman figuring stuff out, making mistakes, making questionable decisions, having relationships with these two different men, and these two relationships do kind of overlap, so she's not the best person in the world, but by no means would I say she's the worst person in the world. She's just a young woman who just hasn't figured herself out yet. And the question is, will she and can she? And can she carve her own path when the expectation is that you're a woman, of course you want to have babies, of course you want to have a family. But the thing is, she is significantly younger than her long-term boyfriend, Anders Danielson Lee, and when Renata Rinsver hangs out with Ander Danielson Lee's friends, they've all got kids, they're all in stable relationships. And the question is, why aren't you? And her mother and grandmother aren't quite so obvious, but it's in the background. And I think the most telling thing about this entire film is that Renata Rinsver has a very complicated relationship with her father. I think the root of the majority of her problems is unresolved daddy issues. And when you have this psychological stuff going on in the background, as well as the societal questions of, you know, are you going to settle down? Are you going to have a baby? Are you going to have a career rather than just working in a bookshop, which is what she's doing for the majority of this film? She's basically trying and, more often than not, failing to find somewhere that she fits. I mean, she is with this older man, Anders Danielson Lee, and she is younger and more underemployed than the people around her. And this sets off philosophical questions in her mind. You know, looking back throughout history and what 
women at her age were doing. You know, her grandmother, her mother, her great-grandmother, her great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, all going all the way back. What were they doing as they were about to turn 30? And most of them had bucket loads of kids. And yet here she is. I mean, one of these vignettes takes place at her 30th birthday party with her mother, her grandmother, and Anders Danielson Lee. And this is a time of reflection. And she just doesn't have her stuff together. And choosing to go off and kind of cheat with Herbert Nordra. I mean, there's one of the vignettes is called Cheating. And it's a very interesting discussion of how far can you go and not call this cheating. It's kind of a, a weird meet cute for her and Herbert Nordrum. But in their mind, or at least in their justifications, they have not cheated. Yet she still chooses to go off with Herbert Nordrum. And she outright says, as she's leaving, and as Danielson Lee, I know eventually I will regret this, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I think that's one of the fascinating things. I mean, this is somebody who is messy, complicated, makes questionable decisions. I mean, this really does have the ring of authenticity about it. This does feel like a real 20-something, early 30-something woman figuring stuff out. And it also kind of has the complex romantic melodramas of Russian literature. I mean, there's stuff in here which wouldn't feel out of place in a novel by Tolstoy or Pasternak or a play by Chekhov. This is messy, it's complicated, and it's everything. I mean, this is one of the best examinations I've seen recently of the human condition, particularly the female condition. This is a story of somebody figuring things out as she goes along, not making the best decisions, not making the best of her situations in various places, but muddling on regardless, and being more or less okay with the fact she is messy and complicated and hasn't got her shit together, and maybe that's okay. I think the script by Joachim Trier and Eskil Vogt is excellent. It really does dissect millennial living. The acting of Renata Rinsva is very, very good. I understand why she got those acting awards. I'm also very, very impressed with Anders Danielson Lee. I think his performance in a supporting role deserved a lot more attention than it got. So, yeah, I think it's very well written, it's well acted, it's a film which examines and dissects and perfects ideas about the human condition, the female condition. I think it's very, very good. And for me, the worst person in the world is a very, very high meh. Archive finish. So I am recording this before the Oscars, so I have no idea whether the worst person in the world did get any Oscars. It would be a shock of monumental proportions if anything other than Drive My Car won Best International Feature, and I would be very, very surprised if the worst person in the world 
won Best Original Screenplay. But at the BAFTAs, the worst person in the world did lose out on the film not in the English language category too, Drive My Car. And Renata Reinsver did lose in the Best Actress category, but to a rather unexpected winner, Joanna Scanlon for the film After Love won the Best Actress BAFTA, which surprised me. I mean, I skipped After Love. It didn't seem like the kind of film that I needed to see, but I'm kind of regretting that now. But anyway, yeah, Joanna Scanlon won the BAFTA. So yeah, The Worst Person in the World, I did really like. I think its script has so much authenticity to it. The performance of Renata Reinsver is very impressive. And I also think the supporting actor turn from Anders Danielson-Lee is excellent. I gave Anders Danielson-Lee an honourable mention as Best Supporting Actor in my recently released Oscar preview videos. So yeah, The Worst Person in the World is a decent enough foreign language film, and it was, for me, a meh. Home Movies It is late February, and I have just watched through Extra Legal Means the adult animated feature, The Spine of Night. But since it appears that this film is actually going to premiere here in the UK on Shudder.com, I was going to have to pirate it anyway. I'm just a little earlier than I would otherwise be because this was amongst the list of features that was eligible for the animated feature Oscar this year. This is a rotoscoped, highly violent, high fantasy story written and directed by Philip Gallett and Morgan Galen King. Philip Gallett has directed a couple of live-action, low-budget horror films in the past, and is also one of the main writers on the Netflix animated sci-fi anthology series Love, Death and Robots. And Morgan Galen King has only one other thing on his IMDb page, and that is a short called Exordium, which is basically a proof of concept of this feature-length film that has now been produced, with a similar approach of having a rotoscoped, high-fantasy, highly violent story only eight minutes long. So this team of Philip Gallatin, and Morgan Gaining King have teamed up together and created this very extravagant, very extreme adult animated film. It tells the story of a witch of sorts, a kind of naked, voluptuous savage who lives in the swamps and is voiced by Lucy Lawless. And at the start of the film, this naked, voluptuous woman is climbing to the high mountains, the snowbound mountains, in search of The Guardian, voiced by Richard E. Grant, who has been protecting a certain bloom for centuries, and his time is nearly upon him. This witch 
suggests to the Guardian that the time has come to give up his vigil, and in persuading him to essentially give up and let this bloom die, this witch starts telling a series of stories, all connected to this bloom, this glowing blue flower, and telling the history of this civilization for the last couple of centuries, going all the way from a Dark Ages style fantasy with wooden buildings and mud to a kind of steampunk aesthetic by the end. And all of these stories, all of these hyper violent stories, are connected in some way to this mystical bloom which has been the source of power and destruction for all these centuries. So will this vigil be given up and will the malign influence of this bloom be taken away from this high fantasy world? This is a film which lays out a statement of intent right from the start. As I said, this opening character we see at the beginning of the film, which is voiced by Lucy Lawless, is a rather voluptuous and entirely naked woman. I mean, apart from, you know, leaves and vines and things like that. I mean, she is a swamp witch, basically. And it's been rotoscoped. I mean, I don't think that Lucy Lawless would actually do so much naked acting for this. And if it was Lucy Lawless, she's put on a hell of a lot of weight since the last time I saw her. But it's a statement of intent that there is a character who, throughout the entire course of this 90-odd minute film, is naked. And you see everything. And there's quite a bit of male full frontal nudity as well in this rotoscoped style, as well as lots and lots of extreme gore, extreme violence, and in-your-face attitudes. I mean, there's one point where for absolutely no reason you go past an open door, and through that door you can see some pretty kinky shit while not happening, but just about to happen. But there's clearly some sexual content in the background as well. I think what Gellert and King are doing here is saying we can get away with a lot of extreme material, so we're going to get away with a lot of extreme material. We're going to throw absolutely everything into this film. The main pattern I see in this film is twofold. One, we want to do every single type of high fantasy we can think of, from the mud and wood, grimy style, through the highly structured, elitist style, to what is basically steampunk by the end. We are going to do every style we can think of. And two, at every possible point, we are going to be as violent as possible, as gory as possible, as extreme as possible. I mean, there's a character early in the film who essentially has his face burnt off 
And because this is an animated feature, we get to see that in all its glory, I suppose you'd call it. This is a a film that has no filter. This is a film where everything is happening all at once. But because we are essentially dealing with centuries of this world's history, it ends up being very, very episodic, with the only constants throughout the course of this entire film being this Swamp Witch voiced by Lucy Lawless and this Mystical Guardian voiced by Richard E. Grant. I mean, and that's actually you know, a, a signpost of a reasonably decent voice cast. I mean, in the first vignette, we also have appearances from Joe Manganiello and Patton Oswalt. So the geek cred of this is off the charts. But I think it's notable that both Patton Oswalt and Joe Manganiello don't have a long part or role to play in this film. But they still got them. So, yeah, I mean, this is trying to be as cool as possible, as noticeable as possible, as extreme as possible, and it more or less succeeds. I mean, did we really need quite so much gore? Did we really need to descend by the end into attempting a vast metaphysical, philosophical conclusion to this story? I'm not entirely sure... We needed that, and I'm not entirely sure it's entirely well pulled together anyway. I think Gallatin King wanted to put absolutely everything into this film. So they did. And on one level, yeah, you've got to applaud their moxie doing this entire 90 odd minute film in a rotoscoped style independently and as far as i know this was hand-drawn rotoscoping which is very labor intensive but they did it and they did it completely independently they got exactly the product they wanted out there and i do applaud them for it for the chutzpah it takes to actually finish this film but i honestly can't say this is a good animated film or a film that I think emotionally works because every time you approach profundity, every time something interesting comes up, like the difference between the natural world and embracing nature and the highly rigid structures of one of these vignettes, which is basically set in a library, which is run by some very elitist scholars. So the difference between the rigid rules of academia and the free-spirited rules of the forest or the swamp. I mean, there's some stuff there. There's some stuff about deep time, certain characters being alive for centuries and needing to protect the world from this dangerous bloom. I mean, I have exposed myself to these horrors slash wonders so the world doesn't have to experience them and destroy itself. And, you know, accidentally it already has. So there's some 
irony there as well. Uh, so yeah, there's there's one or two interesting moments, but overall, it's just chucking everything into this film and trying to make something profound out of it. Just chucking the kitchen sink at this, any high fantasy, high violence tropes you can think of, it's here. So yeah, I, I just don't think that's especially appealing at the end of the day. At least it wasn't for me. So on an artistic level, on an admiration level for the people who decided what they wanted to do and actually did it, I applaud this film. But as a narrative, as a cinematic experience, even though I think this is going to end up on Shudder, I just don't think The Spine of Night ends up working so i admire the art i don't necessarily admire the film and for me the spine of night which i believe is available this week on shudder.com is a middle of the road meh netflix and chill the adam project is the nicest family-friendly sci-fi movie available on netflix directed by sean levy who reunites with his star from last year's Free Guy, Ryan Reynolds, in order to make this movie. And Sean Levy has had a rather eclectic and a very long career. He started out in children's television and has done a lot of television over the years. He did a couple of movies with Steve Martin in the early 2000s, Cheaper by the Dozen, which recently got remade with Zach Braff, and the remake of The Pink Panther. He also directed the Night in the Museum movies, and is also an executive producer on Stranger Things. So, yeah, a bit of a left turn there, but Sean Levy has had a wide-ranging career, and suddenly he's got a good working relationship with Ryan Reynolds who stars in The Adam Project as Adam, a time-travelling space pilot from the future, who, suspecting that something has gone wrong in the past, somebody has been interfering with the timeline, steals a time ship and sets off back into the past in order to try and fix the timeline in 2017 with his now dead father, Mark Ruffalo. Unfortunately, as he is stealing this time ship, it gets damaged, and instead he crash lands in 2022, where he meets his 12-year-old self, played by Walker Scobell, a sarcastic outsider who is constantly being bullied. He's small and he's asthmatic. He's not very nice to his struggling single mother Jennifer Garner, he's honestly a bit of a dick. But Ryan Reynolds, the future Adam, is injured, his ship is damaged, so he needs to spend time with his 12-year-old self in order to fix the ship before he can go back to 2017, hopefully fix the timeline, and hopefully reunite with his wife, Zoe Saldana who went back into the past previously and hasn't been seen since. But the person who runs the time travel machinery 
Catherine Keener says absolutely nothing's wrong. Zoe Saldana unfortunately crashed. Yes, she was the best pilot we had, but you know, these things happen and nothing to see here. So yeah, there's some suspicious stuff going on. So old Adam, played by Ryan Reynolds, has to hang out with his 12-year-old self and try and fix the future by fixing the past and connecting with their dead father, Mark Ruffalo, and trying dealing with the death of their father, Mark Ruffalo, which has put both of them on very difficult paths. So this is a pretty typical family-friendly sci-fi drama. It's got the time travel mechanics, which in common with a lot of time travel stories, if you examine it for even a moment, it does fall apart. I mean, Biff from Back to the Future gets name-dropped in this film. But it is that kind of rollicking adventure story with the older man meeting his younger self. But it does have a few extra elements to it, which really does make the Adam Project a bit more than the standard, as far as I'm concerned. For one thing, there is the genuine pathos of the dead father, and the more time we spend with Ryan Reynolds as the older Adam, the more we realise that the death of his father when he was about eight really, really affected him, drastically affected him, and he's a bit of a mess. I mean, yes, he's a pilot, but he's the kind of maverick CTV pants pilot that nobody really wants to be around, and he has, you know, stolen a time ship. So he's a mess, as is the 12-year-old Adam, played by Walker Scobell. And this is what I think makes the Adam Project somewhat unique in the canon of family-friendly sci-fi dramas, in the fact that Walker Scobell is a bit of a dick. He's not a good kid. He doesn't treat his mother, Jennifer Garner, well at all. He certainly has issues stemming from the death of his father, Mark Ruffalo. He is being bullied, but he's really not helping himself. He's really not engaging or achieving anything that he could be. He's a ball of anger, and he's lashing out as any 12-year-old would. And we can see the path he is going on will eventually lead to the very messed up, very angry Ryan Reynolds. And the interactions between Ryan Reynolds and Walker Scobell, I think, are very, very well done. The script for this film, which has been through several rewrites and several teams of writers, apparently the initial script for this was written in 2012 and was intended to star Tom Cruise and has been through several iterations since then with several teams of writers but the script we see on screen in 2022 is very sarcastic very biting these are not nice people and they don't treat each other nicely despite the fact you know they're the same person and the interactions between ryan reynolds and walker scobell i think are very very funny and somewhat poignant because we do see the traumas, the pain, which is underneath this sarcastic approach to life that both of them have. 
you know, the 12 year old is already the sarcastic person who runs his mouth and gets himself bullied. And we can eventually see that this is the path that will lead him to be the very messed up Ryan Reynolds. And dealing with your trauma, dealing with your issues is one of the strongest parts of this film. And going back in time in order to rescue your wife. I mean, rescuing your hot wife, Zoe Saldana, that's a, a major motivation for what Ryan Reynolds is doing. But the way he does it, I think, was very, very impressive. So, yeah. I think they did manage to find in Walker Scobell a very adequate avatar for what a younger Ryan Reynolds would be. I mean, I think we're very familiar with the sardonic approach to life that Ryan Reynolds seems to have. I mean, his interactions with his wife, Blake Lively, on social media are weird and delightful, but Walker Scobell gives as good as he gets. We can see this you know, biting, satirical approach to life that this kid has. But we also see that he is, or can be, kind of cruel. In some ways, he's not a good kid. And yet, we have to appreciate him. And the way these two people interact with each other, you know, the younger and the older version of the same character, I think is really good. And yeah, in general, I think the Adam Project is very good. I think the... Interactions between Ryan Reynolds and Walker Scobell are very, very well done. The time travel story is a little bit family friendly. It has some bits we go, really? I mean, it's understanding of magnetism. There's a big climactic scene which involves a giant magnet and the way that that magnet is utilized in the final scene. It's like, really? That's the way you do it? I mean, that is a comic book understanding of how magnetism actually works. And yes, occasionally it does slip over into schmaltz. There's a scene which, in my mind, is a direct reference to Field of Dreams, of all things, which is kind of weird, particularly when a lot of this film is so biting and has a little bit of edge to it. So to suddenly have a Field of Dreams moment... Nah, not really. But in general, I really, really liked The Adam Project. I think of its type, of this type of family-friendly sci-fi drama, I think it's a really, really good example. And if that's what you're looking for, you can do so much worse than this. And I really enjoyed The Adam Project. And for me, The Adam Project, available on Netflix, is a yay. Coming Attractions so now that the madness of the Oscar preview season has passed, I can get back to relatively regularly scheduled programming. I'm a little bit undecided as to whether to do a Oscar review podcast and whether or not to do it as an audio or a video file. I don't know. So maybe, maybe not you will have an Oscar review in this podcast feed. But either way, there will be another standard episode. And it's not actually an incredibly busy week this week, albeit the cinematic trips I do want to make are all inconveniently timed and placed. The biggest cinematic release of the week is a film called Ambulance, 
which I have been seeing trailers for for months now. And I thought, oh, okay, that looks like an interesting thriller. Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul-Mateen try to hold up a bank. It goes wrong. And the only way they can escape is to take an ambulance crew hostage with one of the policemen or security guards who they've shot. So paramedic Isaac Gonzalez and ex-army medic Yaya Abdul-Mateen are trying to save this guy in the back whilst Jake Gyllenhaal is driving the getaway car and they're being pursued by police. So, yeah, that sounds like a really cool thriller setup. But then I saw it was directed by Michael Bay and suddenly my interest in Ambulance has dimmed somewhat, but I'd probably still be checking out Ambulance at the cinema. The other film which I thought was going to be a pretty big release is a film called Uma, which is the Korean word for mother, and it's a film from first-time director Iris K. Shim, and it stars Sandra Oh as a Korean-American woman raising her daughter. It looks like in some kind of rural, middle-of-nowhere kind of situation. But when Sandra Oh's mother dies and her ashes are brought to her from Korea, there's a chance that Sandra Oh might quite literally be turning into her own mother. So yeah, a horror film which deals with family relationships, and particularly Asian family relationships, which we've examined only recently in Turning Red. I do want to check out this film. I mean, I had a chance to watch this film at a preview screening at the Odeon Cinema this past Tuesday, but I thought, well, I'm still neck deep in trying to finish my Oscar preview videos. I'll just watch it when it comes out at the cinema next week. But as it turns out, Uma is not playing at the Odeon, so the only cinema I can get to that is showing Uma is the very, very inconveniently placed view in Longwell Green in Bristol, not the Cribs Causa one I usually go to. It's very tricky to get to, and yeah, it's going to be a pain in the ass. but I do want to check out Uma. And the other cinematic trip I want to make is to the Watershed in Bristol, which is showing a foreign language and art house film called Europa which is the film that Iraq submitted to the international film race this year. It is directed by the Italian-Iraqi director Haider Rashid and tells the story of Iraqi migrants trying to enter Europe across the Turkey-Bulgaria border, but being hunted through the woods by Bulgarian mercenaries who have taken it upon themselves to protect Europe. So the way the trailer makes it look is most dangerous game with a socially conscious immigrant narrative put on top of it. So yeah, that looks like it might be really, really interesting. And I find it fascinating that Iraq actually submitted a film to the Oscars this year. And I am curious about Europa and I will be making a trip over to the watershed in order to see that. On streaming platforms, the Northern Irish film Here Before has become widely available, which looks really, really interesting. It stars the awesome Andrea Riesborough as a mother who is grieving the death of her young daughter. But when a family moves in next door, 
Andrew Reesborough becomes convinced that their little girl is actually a reincarnation or you know, inhabited by the spirit of her own dead daughter. And it becomes a psychological, supernatural, twisty thriller. And yeah, I love Andrew Reesborough, and this sounds rather intriguing. So I do want to check out Here Before, which has become widely available on streaming platforms. And I've also discovered a film which has been released onto Disney+. Plus. It's another one which has made it from Hulu to Disney+, Plus here in the UK, very much the same way that Fresh did. But this one is called No Exit, and it sounds like a really, really fascinating thriller about a group of people who are stranded in a rest stop due to a blizzard, and a young woman played by the older sister from the film The Sky Is Everywhere, which I watched a couple of weeks ago, Havana Rose Liu. She discovers that there is a van in the parking lot of this rest stop which has a kidnapped girl in the back of it, but she doesn't know who owns the van. So strangers trapped in a rest stop together, and Havana Rose Liu has to try and figure out which one of the people around her has kidnapped this little girl in the parking lot. And that sounds like a really, really cool premise. So I do want to check out the thriller No Exit, which has been released onto Disney+. Plus. I will probably have time to start ticking off some of my streaming list this week. Top of that list at the moment is the micro-budget American film Hudson, about an odd man and his estranged cousin going on a road trip together to scatter the man's mother's ashes. There's also the micro-budget British film Help, in which a young woman shows up out of the blue at her best friend's house wanting to crash, and weird shit starts going down with this woman, her best friend, and her best friend's husband. And there's also the somewhat similar American movie Black Jade, again, micro-micro-budget film, as a woman shows up at her twin sister's apartment and starts to realise that her twin sister's partner might be going a little bit crazy as he's trying to write his latest novel. So maybe a little bit of The Shining, but done on a micro-micro-budget level. And I also kind of want to explore the horror films which have been released recently. I was planning on doing it all together with The Spine of Night, which got released onto Shudder this week, but you know, time pressures pushed it away. But on Amazon Prime video, there is a film called Master, in which several African-American women start having supernatural things happen to them at a very white, very prestigious college in the United States. And, you know, generational traumas being dealt with in a horror style. The confluence of race and horror is a very strong aspect of the modern cinematic landscape. So I am very interested in Master. And I actually think it's time that I bought myself a subscription to Shudder because there's enough stuff being released on there that I'm interested enough in watching that I think I would close to break even if I did buy myself a subscription. 
I think the tipping point might be the fact that I noticed that the thriller C for me, which I made note of earlier in the year, is actually going to be on Shudder in a couple of weeks' time. This is the thriller where a blind girl who is house-sitting for somebody has to have an app where another woman halfway across the country can sit at her computer and through her client's smartphone say, right, this is where the key is because you've locked yourself out. You know, being the eyes for this blind girl, but you're halfway across the country. And then the house that this blind girl is house-sitting for gets house-invaded. So surviving a home invasion whilst you are blind and whilst you are being guided by somebody who's halfway across the country. So yeah, that sounds really, really cool. And apparently that's coming on to Shudder in the near future. And when you combine that with other things I'm mildly interested in, like the horror movie The Last Thing Mary Saw, late 19th century, very religious, very restrictive family, something bad happens to the matriarch of the family and the granddaughter is blamed who has recently become blind and how did she become blind does it have anything to do with the grandmother's death and does it have anything to do with the relationship that this young woman was having with the maid so yeah i am curious about the last thing mary saw and i'm also curious about they live in the gray which looks like a pretty basic haunted house horror movie, but intriguing nonetheless. A social worker investigating possible child endangerment enters a house and realises, thanks to her recently unlocked psychic abilities, that there is a supernatural presence in the house, which is the cause of the young person's traumas. So yeah, that looks like it could be intriguing as well. There's actually nothing new on Netflix this week, which I'm interested in. I think they didn't release a lot in the same week they were releasing the second series of Bridgerton, or is it the third series? I mean, I don't know. I do not care about Bridgerton, although it is very, very good for the economy of my hometown of Bath. Several times recently, I've seen Bridgerton tours being taken around Bath because a lot of Bridgerton is shot in the Georgian architecture of bath so yeah that's been a real boost to the local economy but i have no interest in bridgerton so i've never watched it but i do still have a list of stuff that is on netflix and i am intrigued about top of that list at the moment i think is windfall a film directed by the talented director charlie mcdowell where a couple, Jesse Plemons and Lily Collins, go to their holiday home only to discover that their holiday home is in the process of being broken into by Jason Siegel. And Jason Siegel basically takes them hostage and they have discussions about the 1%, all that kind of stuff. I mean, Windfall looks really, really fascinating. I'm also intrigued by the Northern Irish thriller Night Ride, a film which seems to be shot in real time, possibly even one take, where a criminal is desperate for one last score to you know, finally get out of the game, but something goes wrong in his last drug deal. So he has to drive around the streets of, I think, Belfast alone with a bag full of cocaine and not knowing what to do with it and whether he will survive the night, whether he will actually get any money for it. So 
yeah, Night Ride sounds like a fascinating thriller. I'm also intrigued by the documentary on Netflix, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing. A documentary about a couple of plane crashes for Boeing, which were avoidable, but as so often happens in the corporate capitalist system, they decided that paying off the victims was going to be cheaper than actually fixing the problem. So two planes went down and hundreds of people died, thanks to Boeing. And this is the documentary about it. And since I'm going to have to make at least two trips to Bristol in the coming week, I will probably have time to tick off a couple of the foreign language films on Netflix, which I'll be able to download onto my tablet. And top of that list at the moment is the Polish film My Wonderful Life with the awesome actress Agata Buzek as a dissatisfied middle-aged woman who is trying to hide the fact she is having an affair when somebody comes up and tries to blackmail her. And there's also The Invisible Thread, which is an Italian drama about a teenage boy who decides to make a film for a school project about his gay fathers. But as he is making this movie for a school project, his fathers start going through the process of breaking up. So suddenly he's making a film about the collapse of his family. And wouldn't you know it to this being a film, he also has his first crush on a girl in his class. So that could be rather cheesy, but I am intrigued by the invisible thread as well. So, lots and lots of stuff to get to. And now I have finished with my Oscar previews, I will be able to get to it. At some point, I also still want to do my Raw Footage Awards, even though it's going to be absurdly late in the air by the time those get out. But I do still want to do it since I have done it for about a decade now. So those will probably be videos as well. So that is something that I will be working on in the background. But I think I need to catch up with a lot of stuff now that my Oscar preview videos are out. So even in an episode where there were a lot of Oscar shortlisted films, there was only one yay in this episode. And that was The Adam Project. For the type of film it is, a family-friendly, sci-fi, effects-heavy comedy, I think The Adam Project worked really, really well. I enjoyed it a lot more than I anticipated. I'm becoming such a fan of the sardonic wit of Ryan Reynolds and his young counterpart, Walker Scobell, gave just as good as he got. So... Yeah, I really liked The Adam Project, and for me, it is a yay. So that's the end of this particular episode, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay, or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure. Ah!